Welcome to the Shift Podcast. This podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee people. The creators of this podcast recognize that we are all treaty people and we accept our collective responsibility to each other and to reconciliation as we work towards an equitable, inclusive, and accessible campus for all. On the SHIFT podcast, facilitated by the Student Experience Office, you will hear from students of diverse backgrounds about their lived experiences at Queen's, how these experiences are shaped by identity, their visions for a safer and more inclusive campus climate, and what needs to happen for there to be a meaningful and lasting culture shift. Then it's kind of like putting a fresh coat of paint over a really cracked wall. We can't fix the systemic problems at Queens without addressing it in education. And I think that's something that the sooner you kind of embrace, um, the more ready you'll be to tackle all of those challenges. And me getting in this door is going to prevent other people like me from having to make those sacrifices. I'm here to make that door stay open for other people like me. Listeners will also learn about resources that exist for equity-deserving students at Queen's and hear tips for where to find community and support. This podcast is part of the Queen's Shift Project, a collection of initiatives aimed at creating a safer and more inclusive campus culture for all students. Hi everyone, my name is Malika and I am the host for the Shift podcast. Today's episodes, we have two very special guests, Mars and Tatiana. Let's get started. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, I'm Tatiana. I'm in my third year as a sociology student doing one of Queen's four credit certificates in global action engagement. And I'm excited to be on the Shift podcast to talk a little bit about being a first generation low income student and the resources here at Queen's that can support you. Hi, I'm Mars. Um, I'm a second year gender studies psych uh, joint honors. I work at the Yellow House as a sexual and gender programming assistant, as well as at the student experience office and human uh, rights and equity office as a lit facilitator. My main interests are in queer joy, trans joy, and overall uh, queer mental health. Let's start with, um, why did either of you choose um, Queens? And let's start with you, Mars. Yeah, um, great question. <laughs> I chose it because of the great education, obviously, lovely programs. But um, my main thing was just the the sense of community, like the space being by the water. I went on a trip in grade seven to Kingston um, for a summer vacation, and we spent a week here, and it was just amazing. Like we got to see the festivals on Princess Street and everything like that, and it was just it, it just felt right. And then years later, when I was applying to universities, I applied to Queens and stuff like that. And Queens was my first choice. I really wanted to go there. But financially, it made more sense to go to a different school. And I was actually going to click the accept offer button. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to wait a day. And I ended up choosing Queens instead. I like made a very big decision because one day I was just procrastinating clicking the accept button. And I'm so glad I did because Queens is a great place to be. Wow, that is really nice. And honestly, that journey, I feel like resonates a lot with people. So Tatiana, what kind of went into you choosing Queens? Yeah, you know what? It's a really interesting story that I think actually also kind of relates to what Mara said, because um, similarly, it made it financially made sense. I'm from Ottawa. It would have made sense for me to go to Carleton or Ottawa U um, because I would have been able to like live at home and I would have been able to save money, find a job there, continue to live with my parents, build those relationships better. Um, And then one day I decided, okay, I'm going to take a jump. I'm going to do an adventure. And then I picked Queens and it was actually very similarly that I was procrastinating, figuring out where I wanted to go because all my life, the expectation was that I would go to university. I was getting good grades and my parents kind of always had that dream set out for me, but it wasn't kind of until my senior year that I realized, okay, that's their dream, but is it my dream? 
dream. And I realized that it wasn't my dream to stay at home and to go to Ottawa U and just kind of like to stay where I'd always been. That if I was going to be the first person in my family to go to university, it was going to have to be something that I really wanted to do. And then I looked into Queens because my best friend said, oh, there's this city. It's Kingston and the Queens is there. And it was her first choice. And a lot of people told me that don't make a decision like that based off of where your best friend is going. But honestly, I kind of did. And I don't regret it at all because I wanted, if I was going to go on an adventure, it had to be somewhere where I had a support system because it was so intimidating that no one in my family or really anyone around me other than my best friend knew what it was like to go to university. So I chose Queens in the end because I procrastinated clicking that button too of don't accept Carleton. Don't, don't accept Ottawa U. I picked Queens. And because I saw all these extracurricular opportunities and I've been super involved ever since then because I came here to kind of find my own place and figure out what my dream is. And I could not be happier, just as Mary said, like, I don't regret it one bit. Yeah, honestly, I feel like a big factor with Queens is that it's not so much an educational institute. Well, it is obviously an educational <laughs> institute, <laughs> but it it really has a very profound sense of community, which like in my small town, like... We had somewhat of a community, we had festivals and stuff like that, but it didn't like, it didn't feel like a community back home, but here it feels like I really belong to a place. And I think that's one of the major appeals of Queens is it, it makes you feel like you belong in a certain space. A hundred percent. So speaking on different communities, like, can you speak a little bit to what communities you've found um, at Queens and how... Um, that kind of has shaped your experience. Yeah, so, I mean, community at Queen's, um, like, obviously, there's the general school spirit. It's a very spirited school. Um, I know there's, like, Foco and Foco and everything like that, but putting that aside, because I'm not as much into that as I am, like, more smaller groups on Queen's campus, I found a really awesome, like, there's a lot of queer and trans support at Queen's, um, not maybe not as much at first glance, but um, especially like being involved with Yellow House before I even worked in it. Things like trans solidarity swims, um, uh, like trans connect nights, gender splendor, the group therapy things for trans students. And then the, just a bunch of like queer things like I run a queer art class, um, stuff like that. It just, um, it makes you feel like you're in almost like a club, but um, it's a little bit more than that because you also get that sense of mental support, like mental health support. You know, there's resources there for you. And that made me, at least in my first year, before I even worked there, um, that made me feel really secure. And um, it made me feel really welcome and accepted at Queens. And like, um, I always make the joke that it's Queens for a reason because I found a bunch of gay friends, which um, makes me really happy because I kind of get to surround myself with people who um, are not only like me, but understand what I'm going through and stuff like that. And we've kind of made our own little safe haven because I know at first it was really daunting not having any queer friends or queer community that I had really, that I'd really found. I mean, I found it quite soon, but uh, even those first few weeks was, was really scary especially when you exist as someone who um, is outside the gender binary, dresses outside the gender binary, expresses themselves outside the gender binary. It's really daunting just existing on like a day-to-day -day basis on campus. So I feel like the community there is uh, welcoming for me at least. Right. I guess what you're talking to is a little bit about um, that community like connection and the fact that you're able to find something that resonates with you. And even though it did take time at the end of it, now you felt more secure and more um, like seen and supported through the different initiatives that were available at Queens. Is, is that correct, Mars? Yeah, for sure. And I think a big thing of it is it's scary to exist on campus, no matter who you are, you know, it's scary to exist in a place where there's a lot of people, it's busy, it's bustling, but to go out and still find your people and still find your community, I feel like that's brave. And by choosing joy in spite of fear, you know, it's a really brave act to exist as a trans queer person on campus. It's brave to exist as a person of color on campus, you know, because there's always going to be that fear, going to be that doubt. But when we find community and we find even just events that make us feel happy, safe, and included, you, you're you choosing joy. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. Uh, Tatiana, can you speak to a little bit more on the communities that you found at Queens and like how you found community through your different identities as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I think really similar to Mars, I love the way you put it in terms of being brave um, and kind of embracing your identity and not trying to change that because I think Queens at times can have a reputation about being a certain way um, and coming from a place of privilege um, for a lot of people. But then you come here and you realize, okay, maybe that's true in some spaces, but um, there's so many programs, some student runs, some run by like staff members that really help you feel safe and feel included. And I think the biggest thing for me has been my involvement with the program we have here called Q Success. And what that program is, is that you get paired with a mentor and you meet them once a week um, for one hour every week for your entire first year. And I was a Q Success mentee. So when I was absolutely terrified and had a thousand questions that I wasn't brave enough to ask because I didn't want um, who I perceived people coming from privilege to think I was um, stupid or that I hadn't done any research about university um, because I don't have any family who have done here and I don't know anyone who's had this experience. I didn't want to seem foolish. So I asked my mentor a thousand and one questions every single meeting and she never treated me the way I imagined I would be treated if I came out and like asked these questions. Even silly little questions like, oh, like, can you take a first year class in year two? What if I, what if I want to take more classes? What if I want to do this? how do I get to Boosted Juice? Like I've I had all of these silly little questions that I felt I wouldn't be accepted if I asked. So I asked her and she answered every single one and she was the most patient person. And she really inspired me that even though I didn't get involved in my first year because I didn't feel brave enough to go and seize out opportunities because I didn't feel like there was space for me. Um, being like a low-income first-generation student, hadn't yet had a part-time job because I was so focused on academics to get a scholarship to come here um, that I, like there wasn't space for me. And then she inspired me to become a mentor. And because she inspired me to do that, that experience as a mentor, helping people, connecting with my mentees, giving them the same support that I had, I really created a community um, of people who understand what it's like to have questions and to acknowledge that everyone has questions and it's okay to do so. And it's okay to ask. And even if it feels silly, it's, it's a brave thing to ask your simple questions because for a lot of our lives, I feel like we're told that we have to have the answers, right? And I think that's something that we feel really often. And the community that I've found in Q Success and branching out into other programs, working with the student experience office, with off-campus students, um, or giving presentations with SAS about like how to study, how to take notes, that's really helped me understand that everyone has questions. And it's come to a point where I answer their questions and kind of take on that leadership role that my mentor gave to me. Um, when I needed it most. And now I try and give that back to the community. That's really heartwarming um, how you both talked about like not only how you sought out resources um, to find your community, but also how you've gone now and given back to the communities that supported you at Queens. I'm going to backtrack a little bit. And you both talked a little bit on like how you felt that there was a lack of financial support um, and how finances in general were kind of a huge proponent in whether or not you amazing individuals were able to come to Queens. So can you speak a little bit to not only financial challenges, but challenges in general that you feel like you had to endure and how that shaped your experience at Queens? I think when it comes to the largest challenges at Queens, it's building an identity you didn't think you were going to have to build. And that seems a little bit confusing. So let me elaborate a little bit on that. Um, what does it mean to have an identity? And coming right out of high school, I know it's a little bit cliche, but you make all these decisions when you're really young and you really don't know who you are. You're 17, applying to university and you, you have no clue what you want to do. Even at 20, I feel like I've got to figure it out, but I know I don't. In three years, I'm going to be like, she had no clue. She didn't know what she was doing. Um, and what ends up happening there is that the biggest challenge is you get placed in a system like the university system, the education system, whatever it is you want to kind of apply that label to, but you get placed in a system that expects you to know what you want to do and that you've already got your identity figured out. And then you come here and you realize, okay, everyone else seems like they have it together. Why do I feel like I don't? 
Why do I feel like I'm unprepared to face these challenges? I feel like no one else is facing these challenges. And I think isolation, um, to answer your question, Malika, is probably the biggest challenge for first year students. It's feeling isolated. Maybe they're not physically isolated. You're on a residence floor likely with hundreds of other people. Of course, you're not isolated. Of course, you may not be lonely in like a physical sense. There's people there. But in an emotional identity, mental sense, you can often feel really isolated. And that's really challenging. And I think that challenge only gets worse when you start dealing with issues in terms of like financial issues, because you feel like maybe you don't belong, you don't have the finances to come here, maybe you're living paycheck to paycheck, or you come from a family that's not supporting you because they can't, they don't have the money. So you're relying on government funding, or you're working your butt off to kind of try and get your scholarship renewed, because if you don't get a scholarship, you can't come to Queens. And I think that's even further isolating, because a lot of Queens students tend to be here from position of privilege, as was kind of mentioned earlier. And I think that's, that is true to an extent, but then you find a community, whether it's through mentorship, whether it's through like Mars, you said, like through Yellow House events, finding a community there that you find other people who are similar to you. And once you actually start to share your experiences with other people and you start to build strong relationships, they start to open up to you and you realize, okay, maybe I'm actually, I'm not the only student on OSAP on my residence floor. There's five other people and they come from a similar background from me and can acknowledge my experiences and breaking into an identity that you feel is your own as opposed to what the system tries and sets out for you um, is a challenge but breaking through that also helps you break through the isolation Mm -hmm. so I think on the topic of privilege I think it's important to know that a lot of us walk with privilege every day that could be um your gender, that could be the ability that I'm able to speak English, the ability that um, I'm able to a hundred other things. I'm, I'm a commerce student. I'm able to access some of the best networks in the country, but it's important to note that privilege only becomes negative when one is willing to keep the benefits for itself. Um, when one is not able to uh, propel it forward for the community and use those connections to help others. But Mars, what, what's your take on um, the distinct challenges that you've had to face on a personal and um, systematic level? Yeah, so on campus challenges, um, or just general challenges in university, um, especially in my first year, it was kind of um, negotiating between the identity of who I was and the identity of who I actually am. Because when I came on campus, I changed everything in my classes to like my actual name instead of my legal name. Um, and it was kind of, it was like the first time I was in an environment where I was 100% known by my actual name. I mean, in the last semester of high school, I did try to use my name in school, but it was kind of difficult because I had to be very careful because my parents would get my report cards, parents would get calls home, stuff like that. So I had to be careful in what spaces I could be me. But suddenly I was on campus, I was me all the time. And then the it was kind of isolating in the fact where I felt like I was two people, where I felt like I was someone completely different on campus and almost an imposter because I was actually living who I was, but I felt like I was abandoning my family by being who I was and not sharing that part of myself with them. Um, so it was really difficult, like being on campus, being like using, uh, using my name and everything like that. Um, and then coming home and not being who I was, but then also the fact that I was coming on campus and I was kind of facing some issues with, um, like the way I dress, the way I, I don't know, hold myself, I guess, or certain people don't like that apparently. And like, I was dealing with like very homophobic cat calls and like getting called a slur on the way off the bus and stuff like that. Or um, just like in classes when I would share my pronouns, um, getting scoffed at or like <laughs> basically getting talked down to when I um, people learn that. It was, it was really difficult to face. And so those are kind of like the isolating incidents where I'm like, oh, am I really supposed to be here? And not even just, am I supposed to be here? Is it selfish of me to live life as who I am? Is it selfish of me to exist as Mars when it would be so much easier for everyone else if I just existed as who they perceived I was? Um, but that's not healthy for me, obviously. 
it's not good for anyone to not exist as who they truly are. So that was that was the challenge, um, negotiating with myself to um, let myself know that it's okay to be who I am. And I think finding those groups on campus, finding community on campus, that's what helped me solidify, okay, I'm okay as who I am. And then I actually eventually came out to all my family in June. So I'm full-time Mars now. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. But yeah, so that's why finding those communities and finding people who understand you, are like you, um, and who like you, right, <laughs> um, is really important because then you learn you're not alone and that um, you have every right to live as who you are. And it's better if you live as who you are and people will celebrate you for living as who you are. And you can do things for other people by living as who you are. I couldn't give back nearly as much as I do if I hadn't taken the leap to be who I am all the time. Now I, now I get to share that with other people and I get to help other people feel more comfortable existing as themselves on campus. And that's my favorite thing ever. <laughs> You spoke a little bit on being able to be real Mars, not only how you introduce yourself, but also uh, on documentation at Queens. Um, if you're comfortable, are you able to talk um, on how that process went? Yeah. So that's actually like, <laughs> I had a really tough time figuring out, especially before I was connected to the L House. I was like, do I put my actual name on assignments or am I required to use my legal name? Because I have on Solus, my legal name is for all my financial stuff, but my real name is on like my classes and stuff like that. And then when I'm in Solus, it says, welcome Mars. When I'm in this, it says, welcome legal name. So it's just, it's really difficult keeping track. And then the biggest thing is I didn't think about it before I took my first exam. I sat down for my bio 102 exam they gave me the paper, I grabbed the pencil, and the first question is, what's your name? What do I put down on an exam paper? Because they have my student number, but my student card says my legal name. If I write a different name, because they went and checked all our student cards for our name, and then to check our faces, like we had to um, take down our masks, because it was when we were masking in exams. Um, and I was like, sweating like oh my gosh I'm gonna get kicked out of the exam I was like shaking I was like oh my gosh this is the first question this is the easiest question on the exam and I don't even know what to put down um I ended up putting down I put my legal name on the scantron and then on the paper I put legal um my name so Mars and then in brackets my legal name and so I was like oh my god they're not gonna grade my test I'm gonna fail because I put my my actual name on it I didn't fail everything was fine. They go based off your student number. Your name is an oversight. So, I mean, double check with your professors, anyone who's listening, if you're really confused. But that was the scariest thing ever, was walking to an exam realizing, oh my gosh, because my name is different on different things. What are they going to look at? Is my stuff going to get marked wrong? Is my stuff going to get lost? But it worked out. Honestly, I have to say, though, that like, as a student going into exams, like what you were in first year last year, that is like, an entirely like very anxious and stressful situation that you don't need on top of walking into a bio exam. And I know um, it may be like a relatively new concern, but it's something that should definitely be factored in because I can't imagine going through that on top of trying to remember the different proteins in a cell. Like, <laughs> I, <don't Yeah>. wanna... <laughs> I really like all I wanted, like, honestly, the most helpful thing, if anyone who is listening to this is ever making forms, please specify legal or preferred name. That makes things so much easier. It's just two simple words. A choice between two words makes things so much easier because if you put legal name, I will put my legal name. If you put preferred name, I will put my preferred name. But if you just put name, I will stress about it for 30 minutes. So, Tatiana, you spoke a little bit on um, on finding community um, in in resources that were provided by Queens. Is there gaps that you found that you wish as a first year weren't there so that you could feel more at home at Queens? 
Yeah, I definitely think there was some. And I think one of the biggest gaps that I've found is that I've never truly found community or as much support as maybe I would like in the classroom. I think a lot of the support I've always found and loved has been outside of the academic classroom. It's been in services, in programs, et cetera. And I think the biggest gap in terms of support, especially for first years, is just the amount of questions and unknowns that you have, they, they can't all be answered by your TA or your professor. And there's this really big stigma, I know, in first year that like, you'd never want to like email your professor or your TA because they're scary and they're, and they're like, they don't seem as approachable. Um, and it can be really terrifying to try and reach out to them, even with academic questions. Um, so suddenly you start finding yourself turning to resources like SAS, so Student Academic Success Services, or maybe you have a question about the content and you reach out to a classmate instead of your TA because they're a little bit scary. And I think that experience is only enhanced if you feel like a marginalized student. What happens there is you really need to kind of fill in gaps with programs like Q-Success Mentorship or kind of, as Mara said, maybe having people who like make the forms or who are like creating those systems we're existing in to have some forethought about like, what do students need and what are they looking for? Like I know the Student Experience Office recently added a little summer course for first year students called Academics 101. And if I would have had that in my first year, maybe I did, maybe I just didn't see it, but I don't, I don't remember entirely, but that course, it answers so many of the questions that I was way too afraid to ask my professors in first year. And that is just so helpful. Definitely, definitely go to office hours, go. You definitely will need support. So go through your lecture notes and be like, I didn't understand this. Why did the textbook say this? Why is there a difference there? And make those connections with professors and the TAs because they are where you want to be. Even if you just want to succeed in the course, even if it's a mandatory course and you just need to get an A or just need to get a B, guess what? They definitely did. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a professor or a TA. <laughs> so make sure you go to office hours and, and access those resources because they're there. And in general, there's a lot of other resources such as SAS they will look at your like timetable and make sure you have capacity for things. They'll identify your extracurriculars. They'll read through your assignments to help you word things better and edit things. Like those resources are out there for people to succeed, especially if you're coming into, especially if you're coming into Queens with maybe not um, as many like networks or connections, even how Mars was talking about like coming from a relatively small town, you might not be able to find the community or a lot of people that resonate um, with the same identity um, or the same communities that you are from. And the benefit of coming to a relatively um, diverse university or a large university is there's definitely people out there that have the same experiences. Um, or have gone through similar um, journeys when finding their identities or are, are in different places. Yeah, absolutely. I think something that you mentioned that I find so important is reaching out to the people around you. And I think if you're scared to reach out to maybe a like a professional staff member, like a professor or someone in an administrative office that, like you mentioned, like reach out to your dons, um, get a mentor, reach out to people on your floor, reach out to upper years that you see even just around campus because I was shocked when I came here to find out just how willing to help so many upper years are and I think that's something that the sooner you kind of embrace um, the more ready you'll be to tackle all of those challenges because there's thousands literally of upper year leaders at Queens whether they're in a mentorship role whether they're volunteering for a program giving presentations whether they're over at health promotion making TikToks literally they're everywhere and they're so willing to help and they're so kind and that's how I got through my first year and got inspired to do things. Also to add on to um, the systemic barriers, really like um, like um, legal name versus um, actual name. Uh, another issue is like the washrooms, the washroom situation. Um, it's pretty good compared to other places. Like I know we have 
uh, us gender neutral folk have it pretty lucky here. We do have quite a few gender neutral washrooms, but the problem is like you literally have to look up an entire list just to find them. And it's very difficult to find them most of the time. And then most of the time when you do find them, they're really gross. So it's things like that, like often the gender neutral toilets are just kind of shoved in wherever they can go. And same with accessible toilets, because oftentimes the accessible stalls, like washrooms, are just made into gender neutral washrooms because they were gender neutral washrooms in the first place. Um, but they're just the ones that are accessible. So not only are gender neutral people um, in their washrooms not really having like proper washrooms or like dirty washrooms or compromised washrooms where people like they're not safe. It's the same thing for people with disabilities or accessibility needs. So there's two whole groups of people. I mean, I'm sure there's more people who this affects. Mm -hmm. So it, that's always fun to figure out and navigate. And I think that's something that we didn't touch on at all is that like when you come from a diverse background, you often have to take the mental and physical labor and the added time and the added stress and pressure of not only advocating for yourself, but following through, creating plans, creating agendas, meeting with individuals, signing forms, especially if you don't have connections um, with staff um, that could, I guess, help speed things along. Um, but in your individual experiences, what do you think is needed to create that culture shift, right? Um, not only from a systematic and policy level, but from the actual interactions with peers and the actual practicing of those policies as well. I think part of it is, I think it's twofold, really, in my, in my mind. Um, I think people from marginalized positionalities need to make the education and resources. Um, and on, honestly, like putting out that content, putting stories out there is also kind of cathartic. I think that people who want to be doing those things and are passionate about those things, they should be putting them out. But the thing is, as much as it's really awesome that we're able to make content, people put content out there and stuff like that, it is ultimately up to those who don't have those marginalized perspectives to educate themselves. Self-education is huge. And the issue is a lot of people don't even know they need to self-educate. Because if you think about it, like, I mean, I do lit facilitation. Um, so lead include transformation or transform. It's basically, it's, um, uh, it's a program where we teach student leaders how to be inclusive in their leadership and what to look out for, how to um, actively resist oppression in everyday scenarios, stuff like that. But um, a lot of people don't realize, like when I talk about, for example, the pyramid of white supremacy, they don't realize that certain things build up certain other things, or they've never heard of intersectionality, which is um, the intersecting methods of oppression. So like, um, if you are, for example, a woman, and you're also a person of color, you have not only the struggles of sexism and racism, but those struggles are combined and actually exacerbated by each other to make an even um, uh, a unique experience. Um, oppression is not just the sum of its parts when you have um, uh, multiple marginalized identities. But another thing I had noticed, like just on a systemic level at Queen's about um, education is we don't have mandated Indigenous studies classes. My sister, she goes to Lakehead and she has to do one every single year that she's there. She has to do an Indigenous Studies class. We don't have anything like that. We don't have any mandated classes specifically for um, any marginalized identities or intersectional, uh, intersectional identities. So I think there should be like a mandated in order to complete your, de your degree, like a first year class where it's similar to a gender studies class where they talk about intersectionality, where they talk about indigenous identities, they talk about indigenous struggles, especially if we take the time to do, um, if we take the time to do um, uh, land acknowledgements and um, always put land acknowledgements, like in everyone's, most people's emails who are professionals have land acknowledgements and there's stuff like that. And, and like on the queen's website has land acknowledgements, but, we're saying these land acknowledgements and we're not teaching the students about the history of where Queens comes from, what Queens has done 
that has been problematic in the past, it's important to teach the negative history of queens and the things we've done in wrong in the past so we can recognize how those might affect our perceptions of education now and how they might have affected the system of education currently. Queens didn't used to let women in, didn't used to let black people in. There was a whole bunch of barriers. Um, there was regular discrimination and that kind of history is lost on a lot of students. A lot of students don't know anything about that. And I think it's really important that as a university, it's well and good to recognize and put out statements, but if you're not actively trying to educate your students on the most basic things about the university, then it's kind of like putting a fresh coat of paint over a really cracked wall. We can't fix the systemic problems at Queens without addressing it in education. So I think a class at Queens would be great, a mandatory class, because we're, we're putting out teachers, we're putting out business people, we're putting out um, doctors, and we're not teaching them on intersectional issues, especially intersectional issues with Queen's history. A hundred percent. I agree. Even like land acknowledgements, I take a reconciliation class. Um, my professor is actually um, an Indigenous person, and she said that like the land acknowledgement is a like conversation starter on like making a personal acknowledgement of like the fact that like you're on someone's land like what does that mean to you how are you using your privilege again privilege only becomes negative when you're not using it for good how are you using your privilege then to further reconciliation in your specific networks with your specific skill sets right what does that actually mean in practice what opportunities are there to self-educate for students and like not only how you said lit, which is for student leaders, but for the general student body. So yeah, I think your point, especially about land acknowledgements that you made was a really important one because, and this is one of my favorite things about some of the programs at Queens that have made a really good step in a positive direction that taught me when I give land acknowledgements, whether I'm giving a presentation, setting a meeting, uh, whatever it be, that I have come to always end off my land acknowledgements. And I learned this from one of my upper year leaders in second year, that I always now end off with the words, and if you're not from Kingston, I encourage you to reflect on the land from which you're from. Because I think that encourages people to begin self-reflection and to begin that process of self-education. Even if you're just going to go to that map on Google, that Queen's always like links at the bottom of every presentation. That's the map of Canada with which indigenous territories um, cover which cities, which areas. Even if that's all they do, it's at least a step in the right direction. And in terms of self-education, I think there are a decent amount of opportunities on Queen's. What I find that is a good opportunity for self-education in this realm is at Queen's, if you're in quite a few of the different arts programs from gender studies, like you were, Mara's, um, from sociology to global development, even sometimes philosophy, you can take a lot of classes as option credits or as your electives to kind of explore those topics. So I know up until this point, I had done the numbers recently that I think I've up to this point, I've taken about six classes that have discussed indigenous rights, intersectionality. And those have been really helpful to encourage me to explore topics that I'm interested in while exploring those important topics. And what I mean by that is that in order to encourage people to become educated, to self-educate on these topics, to avoid placing the burden on the marginalized individual. They must also have an interest, have a desire, a will to do that. You can't force every single person to self-educate because then it's not, it's not quite as meaningful as you want it to be. And because these topics can be so heavy, you want them to have a will, like a vested interest in doing that. And so what happens in a lot of these classes is you'll be given assignments or you'll be given topics that are often like cumulative research projects, take home exams that will ask you an open-ended question such as, okay, based on what we explored in this class, connect this to indigeneity or equity or diversity. And there's so many times in my classes where I thought, okay, I'm learning about, for example, most recently I did a project on legal aid. I would have never thought to connect Canadian legal aid to Indigenous populations, but I actually did my whole project on how legal aid affects Indigenous Black and Hispanic groups um, across Canada. And I would have never connected 
that if had I not explored those topics in class and then been given an assignment that allows me to explore my interest in connection with those ideas. And what these classes tend to do is they'll approach it in a really what I find kind of clever way is they'll teach these topics and then hopefully a good number of students kind of get interested in a topic, whether it's related or not, but is, are able to extend those ideas into wider areas of interest. And what I love about that is that it also encourages us to stop bringing topics such as indigeneity, LGBTQ plus identity, um, being a first generation student, kind of all of these intersecting identities to stop only having those conversations when we're having conversations about those identities. For example, if we're going to have a conversation about government policy, about legal aid, um, about I know a big one in the news recently was like sex ed in schools. Like if we're going to have conversations about completely unrelated topics, we can still bring up those identities. We can still have conversations in relation to those identities about seemingly unrelated topics, because once we start branching out and exploring those topics that seem unrelated, and start to bring identities into those larger discussions, we start to get more acknowledgement, more recognition for these issues. And it really starts to help people who may feel marginalized to actually feel seen because we're not just talking about indigenous rights when we're talking about indigenous rights. We're talking about indigenous rights when we're talking about legal aid or curriculums and whatever else it is we're talking about. Yeah, I love that point, honestly. I think that's a really big thing too, where if we bring marginalized identities into everyday discussions, especially surrounding healthcare, mental health, um, uh, police systems, like basic everyday things that we talk about politics, if we bring those issues into there, then it also kind of normalizes them. It, it prevents, because a lot of the times we talk about this topic separately, which others, those groups and those identities, and it kind of makes you feel like it's a special topic. It doesn't really affect, it's like, um, I don't know if you guys ever, well, at least in my experience, like I'd be in high school and people would like, just teachers would mention like, oh, gay something or something like that. As if there weren't gay children in the room, as if no one was trans in the room. You don't know, you never know. And when politicians or policymakers have that same mindset where they don't acknowledge that there are diverse identities, then you'd get policies and education systems and all these things that kind of view you as an exception to the rule. Marginalized identities are not exceptions to the white cisgender um, upper middle class exception rule. Like we're not exceptions. We are rounded members of society and our needs should not be secondary thoughts. They should be included in the first discussion. They should not be amendments. They should be a part of it. Yes, and I absolutely love your point about how people are well-rounded individuals. And you would have explored this in first year gender studies because I know I did, or even up your gender studies, there's this concept created by Peggy McIntosh called the invisible knapsack. And it's all about how everyone has privileges and everyone has disadvantages or you likely have disadvantages. And what happens there is we kind of get lost in always othering disadvantages. And I loved your analogy of feeling like people are talking about your disadvantaged identity, yet it feels like they're not talking to people in their room. It kind of feels like we were talking about earlier that they're just checking boxes. To, yep, I talked about being LGBTQ in my class today. I checked the box that I talked about low-income students, but they're not feeling like they're in the room. And that discussion on privilege is so important because like you were saying, Malika, as soon as we acknowledge that privilege exists, we can start to wield it for good, um, for lack of a better term. And that's actually something I've been talking about in one of my classes called racism and health. And it's literally all about when you acknowledge privilege, you can begin to dismantle ideologies that you may not have known you had that were unconscious up until that point. And as soon as you do that, you can begin you can begin to use those efforts for good. You can begin to self-educate. You can begin to have conversations with people in the room instead of talking to people in the room. You can begin to ask for their experiences, ask for their input. And I think that's something great that the Shift podcast does. And it's not talking at people. It's not telling people, okay, this is how it is. 
you're talking to people in the room, you're interacting with them. And as soon as you start to hear those experiences and hear those perspectives, you suddenly have this massive wealth of information in front of you that you can use to kind of dismantle oppressive systems around you. A hundred percent. And like a huge portion of that is the fact that like inclusivity has to be inclusive. It can't be, (laughs) it can't be the first or last slide or a dedicated lecture. It has to be embedded throughout everything and like Mars is snapping right now but a hundred percent I it always like it always boggles my mind when people have a presentation and like the title is like EDII lens and I'm like no but it should it should have been throughout like why why are you now talking maybe it's good to highlight reinforce parts of your plan EDII and accessibility and indigeneity those things should be embedded throughout decolonizing curriculum being mindful of who's in the room who's not in the room and how do I make sure my language is inclusive um and so there's always room to learn grow and and take actionable steps to create the difference that we want to live in I'd also love to add about the idea of checkboxes. Checkboxes can also be so daunting when you are presented with them. For example, I don't know if you've ever filled out forms where it's like, okay, do you identify as this? How about this? How about this? And I know even sometimes employment at Queens will ask you, okay, fill out this survey. We're tracking equity data. And it's asked, okay, do you identify as a woman? Do you identify as a uh, person with a disability? Do you identify with a marginalized sexual orientation, a marginalized racial group? And I am always so intimidated and a little bit terrified by filling out those forms and labeling myself as such, because I don't know how that's going to affect me. So for example, I know when I first applied to have a job, it gave me that survey. And the very first question on that equity survey is, would you like us to have this survey for the appointment process, i.e. for the hiring process? Or would you just like us to have this survey for the for statistical purposes? And I checked for the appointment process because I didn't want to be given a job not of my own merit. I didn't want to be given a job because I'm first generation, because I identify as a racial minority, but I also didn't want to not be given a job because I didn't check the box. Yeah, checking off that box is very intimidating, but people are always going to have something to say about how you got there. You actually deal with how Mars was saying that the intersectional identities, the obstacles that that specific identity faces. That's why you check the box because other people don't have to check that box. You know what I mean? Like when I got into commerce, it was a 4% acceptance rate. And it was a known fact within my school that I I only got there because I'm that diversity. I meet that diversity quota. And do you know how demeaning that is to like the work that I've put in? I was an IB. I, wore, I wrote multiple research papers and no one understood like I think I was the only one in the history of my school to get to this program and so something I'm going to push back a little bit on you Tatiana is that like you deserve to be there a okay b no one else has to deal with the obstacles you're checking off that's why you check it off and c what other people think of you is none of your business exactly Yeah, I was just going to say, and a lot of people don't realize the reason there are diversity hires or whatever is we need to be in that room. We need to be there. Who is going to think of us if we are not thinking of us, if we're not supporting our communities, if we're not uplifting other communities? It's not fair for anyone to ever say, you only got there because of this. For me to get in this door took a lot of sacrifice you didn't see, and me getting in this door is going to prevent other people like me from having to make those sacrifices. I'm here to make that door stay open for other people like me. Every single time people with marginalized identities um, get accepted into that program, get the job, uh, write that paper, exist in spaces, they make those spaces better. And they make those spaces more accessible, more attainable, less daunting for other people. Every single step you take as a marginalized person 
enables another person to take a step a little easier. And that's what we want for our communities. And so for anyone like to say, oh, you only got in because you're a diversity hire. I got in because I'm bringing something to the table that you can't bring. I think we've already been doing this throughout our conversation, but what's one piece of advice that you will give to incoming students and what's something to encourage incoming students who might be listening to this podcast? My piece of advice to first year students is that you may come from a background where you or the people around you are used to hearing that some things just aren't possible. So whether you're a first generation student, whether you're low income, whether you're LGBTQ, a racial minority, have a person who identifies with a disability, University is a fantastic place to change that mindset. Whether you take a chance going to a club, apply for a job that you didn't think you were going to get, a lot of that is just the voices of our past telling us we can't do it, when in reality we can. So my best piece of advice is to take a chance on yourself. And even if it doesn't feel right, do it anyways, because it's much better to try something that you think you might regret than cliche I know than to regret not doing it that's amazing advice I love that my final parting wisdom really is it's not so much advice as it's just something to remember especially coming in as a first year is that there's a space for you Um, there are people who will love and support you there are people who are going to celebrate you for being who you are And that takes time and it can take a week, it can take a day, it can take a year, but you'll find your space and there is always space for you. And never be afraid to live out loud as yourself at Queen's. I am not going to even bother repeating that. You heard it first from Tatiana and Mars. Thank you guys so much for coming on um, and speaking on so many different things and genuinely Queens is so lucky to have two amazing individuals like you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Shift Podcast. For a list of all the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit the Shift Podcast website at queensu.ca slash campuswellnessproject slash shift dash podcast. If you'd like to get involved in The Shift Podcast or have questions or comments in general, feel free to email us at queensshiftproject at queensu.ca.